What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Av Geek Chronicles podcast. I am your host, Colin, the Chief Av Geek, Aviation Maniac, or whatever you want to call me. The Av Geek Chronicles podcast. So last week we had an episode. Uh, I promised everybody that I was releasing a new segment on the podcast, and me and my buddy Eli, we did just that, and we're going to do this about every month, and we're just going to talk about life as, as young aviators, young creatives, people with young ideas. Uh, we kind of want to just pump life, new life, uh, into the aviation world, and that's really what we're doing uh, with that segment and what I'm doing with this podcast. So it's kind of, it's really great. We're being real. Uh, last time, what were we doing? We were playing... Uh, Oh, we were playing Grand Theft Auto literally during the podcast, and we were just we were just chopping it up, and it was made for some really really good content. Uh, so we're gonna do this once a month, and I think it's gonna be really special. Uh, I think it'll produce some pretty interesting stuff. But today we're bringing back another episode of the Ask the Ask Geek Show, and I have a super special guest coming from all the way down in sunny Miami. I got Sergio today. Sergio, how are you tonight? Hey, man. I'm great. How are you doing? Good. All right. So before we start, you know, I, I want every episode, I uh, let uh, the guests talk about, you know, who they are, where they're from, where they come from. So I'd love for you to introduce yourself to the audience. You know, where are you originally from and how old are you? So I'm Sergio. I'm uh, 22 years old and uh, I'm originally, I was born and raised in Peru. So I grew up uh, in Lima, Peru, the capital. And, uh, basically came over to the United States when I was a uh, 17 year old. So about five years ago for uh, flight training and uh, now to work for the airlines. So how, when we were talking and kind of chatting up before, uh, before we kind of play in the podcast, you had told me that you had kind of moved from, uh, you started up in New York and now you're down in Miami. What's kind of the life like between the two cities and which one do you enjoy better? So the reason why I moved to New York is because my class assignment for my base was uh, LaGuardia. And um, I started class, airline training class, with a couple of friends from Embry-Riddle. And we both decided, why not? Let's move to New York for a year and check the city out and how the life in the city is. So uh, we rented an apartment in Queens. And, uh, you know, it, it was fun. Flying in and out of New York was, was a lot of fun. Um, the city never stops. There's always something to do. And um, I was there for about a year until I, uh, you know, put my bid request for uh, the Miami base, which is where I currently live, and I moved down to, to Florida. So are you there permanently, or is it until you kind of, uh, in tiny, assuming you'll get out of the aircraft that you're in at some point, will you have to move bases? Or because uh, you work, you know, uh, for the airline you do, and it's based in Miami, are you going to be able to stay there? Yes, if I want to, I, I can stay here. I I probably will stay here. And uh, New York was just kind of an experience for me more yeah. than actually because I don't have family in New York. So it was just the whole city experience. Uh, what I was actually looking you know forward and, and wanted to experience. So I know Miami's a hub, but your airline also is hubbed here in DFW. Do you think you would ever move to this area? Would it happen, or is it because you know it's kind of like they're both major, major hubs. So it's kind of like, uh, well, you know, it's one or the other kind of thing. They are. So what we do is, uh, if we want to transfer bases, we put in through the system, a request three months in advance. Yeah. And if they have any vacancies, uh, many, meaning openings, then, yep. uh, they, they will move you. 
And, you know, depending on the base you are, your schedule will also be affected. So some bases are more senior than others. um, And um, seniority, it's everything in the airline industry as far as your schedule goes. So LaGuardia was a pretty junior base, and that's why I got assigned LaGuardia. Miami is more on the senior side, um, and that's why it took me a little bit longer to hold Miami. So have you lived... Okay, so you've lived in Miami, you've lived in New York. Where else have you lived here in the States? And I've lived in, you know, Daytona Beach for, for school. Uh-huh. That's So just those yeah. three? Because, yeah, three. Because, uh, and, you know, I know there's some people listening to the podcast who know you, who follow you, uh, and understand where you came from. But, you know, probably there are some people, okay, you only lived in three places. The question is, you know, are you originally from the United States? And if not, where are you from? So I was born and raised in Peru, and um, the reason why you know I'm able to work and eligible to work in the U.S. is because my dad actually was born in the States. Was he really? So, yeah. So he and he lived here in the States throughout my most of my childhood. So I would come a lot uh, to the States to visit him every year, and um, thanks to him, I have the Peruvian citizenship, and I also have the United States. Citizenship. So you have dual citizenship. That's pretty cool. I do. Yeah. So because you were raised abroad and I found that really super interesting when we first connected, um, you know, that you were raised abroad, you came over here, you came to school, you know, now you get to work for pretty much one of the biggest airlines in the world. You know, since you were raised abroad, what was life like for you growing up in Peru? So, I mean, I wouldn't say it was too different of how somebody will uh, would grow up here in uh-huh. in States. Um, I lived in the city. I grew up in, in Lima, which is uh, the capital. There's about 9 million inhabitants in Lima. So it, it's pretty developed. Um, and I always knew I wanted to become a pilot. So kind of the reason why I uh, came here is because aviation back home is not as developed as in the United States. Yeah. We only have maybe two or three flights crossing the entire country. And it, it, the opportunities back home are not as um as they are here. So uh, the plan was to, you know, once I finished high school, make sure that I came here and um, got the education here in the United States. So when did you get that start? You know, okay, so you were in Peru and the aviation world isn't as developed uh, there as it is here. So when did you start getting that itch for aviation? And you were like, man, I want to do that. So I think big part of it has to do with uh, what we were talking about. My dad lived here. So Every year, my mom would, you know, bring me at least twice a year to, to visit him. And he has kind of a passion for aviation. He's not in aviation. He doesn't work in aviation. But um, he he enjoys you know, watching planes take off and land. So when I would come here to, to visit him, he would take me to here to Miami Airport. And we would watch, you know, planes take off and land all day. And um, it started, I think, back then when I was, what, six, seven years old. So, so you had the passion. You, it started to kind of uh, to to kind of brew. We'll say, were you you know growing up as a child? Were you into other things? Like what other things? You know, hobbies or sports? Uh, did you do while you were growing up? So, so besides aviation, I uh, you know, enjoyed soccer. I used to play soccer for school. Okay. Um, I also enjoyed history although i don't know as a subject in school so at one point in my life i said well if the if the uh pilot 
career doesn't work out, I'm going to become a history teacher. And that kind of, you know, went away pretty fast after. <laughs> after you're yeah. like, oh, I can do this whole flying thing. <laughs> right. I talked to more people about uh, the career as an airline pilot and everything. Do you think you would ever go back to being a history teacher? No. No, absolutely not. Maybe an aviation history teacher? <laughs> Maybe. And it's funny because I have, you know, a couple of my teachers in, on social media, and they, they look at my stories, and especially my history teacher, I still have her, and, you know, she, she definitely looks at it. And Really? She, she still follows yeah. you from high school? Yeah, she does. She sees how much fun I'm having right now, and, I don't, you know, I don't think I would have had as, nearly as much fun if I – teaching history that's funny so. that's funny because I, I got a few teachers that do that do, that follow me the same thing and we still we're still connected and everything and it, it's a really good connection I, I i really enjoy i mean they're really really good people and it's it's kind of cool for them to just basically watch you grow up and watch yep. what, what's going on um so i have to ask because my you know my wife kind of asked who she kind of asked these people you know like you know the airline pilots like they work a lot like you know how how do they you know do they date? Do they have wives and husbands? I'm like, well, yeah, they're just normal people. So right. I have to ask, as a young aviator in the airline business, do you have yourself a significant other? You, I don't personally. Okay. I'm single. You can. Yeah. I think it's hard at, at the beginning because uh, you have you don't have as much control over your schedule. Yeah. Uh, with seniority, I think it's a lot more uh, feasible to, for example, have day trips, which means just go and ha come back the same day. And I do have those scattered around the month, but it's not the norm. Like, for example, tomorrow I'm going to Atlanta and I'm flying back to Miami and it's just a day trip. I'm out and back. So uh, senior guys with uh, more time in the company, they bid for those and they are literally never spending time away from home in hotels because only the only thing they're doing are day trips. Yeah. And that's you know that makes it possible to date and have a normal life yeah 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 no it's just it's just one of those things that you know people I mean, I get it. I, yeah, I get it as too. I mean, I'm not a airline pilot. You know, I fly, I like to fly on the weekends and whatnot. And everybody's like, well, what do you, you know, do you take your wife? You know, what do you do when she doesn't want to go? And I'm like, well, we're a married couple. We, you know, we fly together. It's not a big deal. You know, we're normal people over here. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's like, right. it's kind of like people, you know, people think like pilots, they, they have no other life than flying. But, no, well, sort of it's true a little bit, but. <laughs> All right. So. If you could think back to your childhood, you know, we were just talking about it. Is there anything that maybe you wish you could have had experienced more as a kid, you know, kind of looking back on it? So I didn't have much guidance when it came to aviation because none of my family members are in aviation. So maybe I did wish I had more exposure to um, an introduction to aviation. Or, you know, guidance from somebody who was already in the industry, yeah. uh, which they didn't have, but it ended up working out and turning out well. So maybe, maybe. When you what? were little, did you think, you know, you ha you enjoyed, you know, watching your planes and being there with your father and, and uh, you know, uh, watching them in Miami and everything. But when you were little, were there other things that you thought, you know, you may have been when you grew up. I know you were kind of saying maybe a history teacher, but can you think about when you were little and you're like, man, you know, it's like me, right? Like everybody thought 
as a little boy, oh, they're going to become a policeman or a firefighter or something. See, I, I can't remember, to be honest. <laughs> I barely remember I did it yesterday. Yeah, same, right? <laughs> I think it, I think it's the whole getting older thing. <laughs> we just kind of forget. That's where I don't even remember, so. <laughs> um, all right, so then I guess I'm going to turn that kind of that question around, you know. So who was the big inspiration for you to get in, you know, into aviation? I know you were talking about, you know, your dad kind of took you, but was it really a self-created inspiration, do you think? I think it was a combination of self-created and his influence. Uh Uh, You know, uh, I would ask him to, I remember when I was maybe six or seven, I asked him to, for my birthday, to buy me a flight simulator and, um, you know, it was way back when I had a joystick. Like micro, Microsoft Flight Simulator? Yeah, I think it was the 07 version. So like 13 years, you know, 12 years ago. And uh, yeah, I would play home and I think it was a lot of self-created. Um, and then he contributed and kind of uh, fueled it. And I did have some family members who, you know, going back to what we were talking about, they were mentioning, well, you, you know, you're going to have a tough time having time for, for family and, and kids uh, because you're going to be away from home. But I still pursued what I do and what my passion was, yeah. you know. Uh-huh. It's, you know, it's funny that you say that, right? You know, because I get that. I, I do get it. And I've gotten it sometimes from my own family, too. But it's weird because it doesn't matter what you do. But when you pursue something, even though if it takes some time away from people, in the end, it'll make things better because you're happy and you'll be able to build those, you know, better foundational relationships out of that because you'll Absolutely. be so happy about what you're doing. Absolutely. Because we, we do spend most of our lives working. So, you know, even if you're home every night, if the fact of going to work and hating what you're doing won't make you happy. Yeah. And it will affect your personal life too. Oh, it's huge. It, it's, it, it's funny because I look back on it and how I kind of – how I started just in the aviation world in general. And I'm, you know, I only have my private, right. But I'm, I get to work in the industry every single day. Uh, uh-huh. and how I got there, I got asked a question tonight. You know, we were talking about my, ch- my check ride that I was doing earlier today. Um, and the, the guy, you know, the instructor had asked me, you know, how did you get into the aviation world? And I said, funny, you asked, it's a really long story. Uh-huh. Um, but it's just, you know, when you start pursuing your passions and you find where you're happy and you just work at it, it's just life becomes easier. It's so it's so funny how things work. Um, so, you know, on that topic and kind of finishing out kind of your personal life, what do you think were some of the biggest lessons that you learned? I mean, I know you have experience growing up uh, in a totally different country that a lot of people don't have the opportunity to to live in two countries like that. So, you know, being able to to grow up in that different culture and then come over here and live in a couple of different cities, what have been some of those big lessons uh that you've learned uh and you kind of still keep close to yourself you know i think coming from back there i was probably the only student from my high school who uh went to study abroad and is working abroad and i think being humble is is important and uh-huh. i think i learned that as i you know started my flight training and, and today because it, I consider myself really fortunate to be where I am and thankful to, you know, those who gave me my education, my parents who helped me and supported me. And, 
the sense of giving back uh, to to them in in any way I can and reward them with that is is something that I look forward to every day. Do you think? And I know what I would say to this answer uh, or this question. Excuse me. Do you believe that if anybody wants to be in the aviation space, if they don't have humility, they will fail? Absolutely. I, I feel like if you're not a humble person, and because I feel like, especially when you're in the air and you're training and stuff and you're by yourself out there, man, if you don't have a level of humility and you're out there showboating, man, that's like a recipe for disaster in this space. It, it, yeah, it will kill you, absolutely. Yeah, you need to know your limits and you, you need to know what, what your limits are. And if you know you're not comfortable, don't do it because it's, like you said, a recipe for disaster. Uh-huh. So – was there anything else that you think, you know, as a as a kid, anything you experienced, anything you saw, uh, or maybe something about your family that, I mean, really as a kid has made you what you are today? Well, so my parents um, didn't achieve the level of education I got to achieve. And I think that um, also working hard towards my education was something that I wanted to make them feel proud about. Uh-huh. So, you know, I, I think that when I was flight training and I had hard times with, I don't know, landings or, or a lesson didn't turn out as well, my motivation for the next one and to do better was that I wanted to, you know, be successful for, for them and show them that I was able to achieve what I was um, what I had planned to achieve. And so not only were you making yourself happy by achieving kind of the dreams and goals that you had, but at the same time, you kind of were showing them that mom and dad, I'm serious about this. Like, right. This because I, I felt like, about. exactly. Cause I felt like I was not just failing myself, but failing them that, you know, I, I left home at a young age and, um, came to a completely different country. And my mom was, you know, sad about the fact of me leaving home and and she knew she wasn't going to see me as much and uh but i wanted to prove to her that it was all worth it and it was going to be worth it at the end yeah so this is a great segue i think man this this conversation is going well so far we're gonna we're gonna jump into kind of where your pilot training started and i think it's super fascinating because you kind of already have touched on it a little bit uh but you kind of you're the first guest that I've really had on the show that took it in the college route, like literally went to school to become an aviator. Really uh-huh. haven't had that yet. Uh, so you moved from Peru uh, to Florida. Was it Daytona? Yes. So you moved to Daytona, and you attended the big old grand university that I think a lot of people in the aviation world know, Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Um why did you choose that route? I mean, there's so many different ways to, especially here in the U.S., to the you know all the different ways you can get an FAA license. You know, mm-hmm. why did you decide to go that route, and why did you decide to go to Embry Riddle? So, you know, all the research about flight schools and flight training took back when I was in Peru. Yeah, when I was high school. So, it was. Yeah, I started on the internet just googling places to become a pilot in the United States, flight training, and. I came across with the traditional flight school in system, and I also started looking further and saw the possibility of, okay, you can fly train, but at the same time, you can get a 
a college degree out of um, the education. Uh-huh. And, um, you know, there was a big price uh, difference between the two and cost difference between the two. And uh, it took some, you know, talking, discussing with my parents and um, asking myself, Am I, you know, really going to take advantage of the opportunity of going to mediation school? What the benefits might be, and I think the decision was we both agree. It, you know, me and my parents both agree it's it's going to be worth it at the end. Yeah. So you you found it purely just based on your own research? Yes, based on the first time, you know, I stepped on the campus was the first day as a freshman. I Seriously, never, you didn't take a yeah. visit or nothing. Nothing. It was most kids there already been campus once or twice before. Literally, orientation day was the first day I was in Daytona Beach ever in my life. Wow. So, so you yeah. literally you walked in blind, pretty much blindfolded then. You didn't know what to expect. No. <laughs> That's pretty crazy. That that pretty much means, man, you took the you took the bull by the horns and you just you went with it, basically. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, what was the university life like? Because people, you know, if there's people listening to this and they don't know what Embry-Riddle, uh, you know, is, for uh-huh. everybody's, you know, knowledge, it's a very massive aeronautical university. I mean, they have campuses across the United States um, and whatnot. But what was, you know, kind of what was the college life like in all that? Sure. So. The Daytona Beach campus is the main campus for Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University. Uh, they have, I believe, over 3,000 undergrad students um, on campus. And uh, like you said, it's not only flight training. Uh, they have multiple degrees such as aerospace engineering, aviation business, commercial operations. I mean, uh, so uh, it was pretty cool to meet people from not only the United States, but from all over the world. I would meet people from South America, I would meet people from Europe, I would meet people from Asia. And the the common theme was that everybody was in some way attached to aviation, not necessarily there to become a pilot, but maybe pursue a degree in business and become an airport manager in the future. And uh, that was something that made me feel like home when I started there. Um, Besides the classes and the flight training, uh, I had a lot of fun. You know, I, I uh, participated in a couple of clubs there on campus. I lived on campus for the first year for my for my freshman year, and then I got to move um, outside um, campus. And Daytona uh, is a fairly small city, so there isn't you know much to do outside. But I would go to Orlando, which is only an hour away, and mm-hmm. you know, it would be kind of a weekend thing to go to Orlando and fun there. So does, so basically I think you may have already answered it, but I just want to clarify it for everybody. So does everybody at Embry riddle, do they take flying classes or is it just up to you if you want to take that route? So if you major in aeronautical science, then you take flying um, course, the flying lessons, but you don't have to, if you want to go for the aviation business administration degree, you will do just a traditional four-year degree and you won't be flying or aerospace engineering, for example. And so you took the flying route, obviously, you know, as people know. So how right. was pilot training and, you know, what types of things did you do while you were going through uh, the program? So you're combining flight training with um, academic classes. Typically a semester is about 15, 16 credits normal workload so we're talking about five six um, college classes and then 
uh, you would have a flight log of three times a week in which you would be, you know, flying during those times. So, um, I also stay during some of the summer terms uh, to make progress with my flying and uh, graduate quicker. And um, so, did you graduate uh, quicker than four years? I uh, graduated in May of seventeen, and I started in fall of thirteen. So, yeah, about three a semester. Half, yeah, that's pretty good. So, so why did you why did you choose that route? The college route? No, the to get to get it done faster. Because I just wanted to go to the airlines as quick as I wanted, as oh, I could. Okay, so you pretty yeah. much you had your eyes on eye on the prize, and you said, "I'm just gonna get it done right. ASAP." <laughs> yep. Um. So, did you? So while you were in school, did you attain all your ratings while you were there at Embry Riddle? I, I did. Okay. Yeah. So I came to Riddle. Uh, you can come to Riddle with your private, even your instrument, and just you know further your your ratings as as you go. I came with zero flight time. From uh, the beginning, and I did all the way up to my CFI there and uh, my double I. So, how many hours did you gain while you were there at Embry Real? Did you gain all fifteen hundred? So, because it's an aeronautical university with a degree, the FAA lowers the minimums from fifteen hundred to one thousand. Uh, okay. And um, it's called it's what we call the restricted ATP. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I graduated there with. Um, I got my commercial with around 200 hours, and then I flight instructor for a year and a half, uh, and left when I had roughly about yeah, just over a thousand hours. And so, for people out there, if they're looking to do the same type of thing, they don't have to go to Embry Riddle. They could go to any aviation university that has that approved. Because I want to say I read about right. it, and it just has to be approved by the FAA to be able to get yeah, that exemption. There are a bunch. It's not just Riddle. You know, you have UND, you have FIT, and uh, a lot more all across the nation that um, have the, the curriculum approved by the FAA to have the lower uh, requirements for the restricted ATP. And so every Riddle was, correct me if I'm wrong, it was part 141, right? Correct. Which is, you know, for everybody out there that doesn't know here in FAA, it's just a very structured uh, environment. You have a lot of checks, uh, and it's, you know, it's you just kind of go down the line. But... Overall, you know, for you and maybe for your classmates, what were a lot of the pros and the cons uh, of doing a program and attending a university like Embry-Riddle? So, you know, the fact that you you have so much um, oversight of the FAA, I think is is a pro because you have a well-structured management. You have an instructor who will be there every day. and the planes were, were uh, maintenance-wise 100% every time. They would not let you fly if you have a deferred item maintenance issue. Mm-hmm. They were very strict on um, on maintenance, on uh, if they let you go, if the weather was you know, not uh, great, uh, controlling solos, making sure you had all your endorsements, uh, making sure you were really prepared. Uh, and I think it's worth it on the long run to do 141 because – the airline training is very structured. It only takes about two months. You only get about eight simulator sessions in the jet, and that's it. Your eighth session is the check ride, and it's only about two hours each session. So there's, and it happens all in the span of one week. Yeah, there's not a whole lot of time to 
teach you some basic SOPs like, hey, how do you run a checklist or callouts? And if you yeah. come from a 141 background, it, it, the, the transition is much smoother than coming, I believe, from a Part 61 background. Yeah. yeah. So overall, you know, looking back on your on your Riddle experience, how would you, you know, how would you grade it? What would be the in the comment section, you know, what would you what would you put the comment on your experience at uh, at Embry Riddle? I think I think they they do a great job. Uh, great professors as far as the classes um, and instruction quality was pretty much high up there. Uh, the only thing that you know I would say, and we're probably going to touch on it later, is that you really don't have instructors that are that um, experienced anymore because how quickly they're all yeah. leaving to airlines. So uh, maybe a problem that they're experiencing now is that you, know, you don't have an instructor with more than a year of experience. And that maybe has an impact on the quality of instruction. Mm-hmm because it takes time to be a good instructor. It doesn't happen overnight. So that's a, that's a super, super interesting thing that you just said, because, you know, I was talking with the instructor tonight. Do you think because of this so-called pilot shortage that's being created, and I know we're kind of going off topic here a little bit, that maybe the 141 route, though watched by the FAA and graded by the FAA, maybe is becoming a way where you may not be getting the best instruction because 141 instructors are looking to get through the system quicker. Whereas you could find some part 161 instructors that have been doing this for 50 years. I don't know. I'm just throwing it out there. Right. I think so. I think so. It's affecting most 141 schools quite a bit because they, they can't retain instructors and the failure of check right, the, the failure rate is also increasing because the instructors, since they are so new, they're not really ensuring the students are prepared for their check right. And, mm-hmm. you know, you see a 80% failure for a private check right among the students. And, you know, you look at why it's happening. And I think it's because instructors are more worried about getting their, their hours as soon as they can, then actually, you know, going out of their way to, to teach a student, take the time to make the student successful. Yeah, it was something, the instructor that I'm hiring for my my instrument, uh, he, the one thing that he said, he goes, I will not let you sit for the check ride unless I think you're ready. Right. <laughs> and he just straight up, he goes, I won't let I won't sign you off. Like there's just no way. Like we're gonna go. We if we have to spend an extra month working on stuff, we're gonna spend an extra we'll month working on. So I'm like, man, you know, maybe part sixty one isn't the easiest and not maybe the most financially sound way of going about flight training because sometimes it takes longer. Uh, and for if you know if people don't know part one forty one, there are a little bit of leniency on some of the hours and whatnot. Um, but you know maybe. And that's right. Like when you think about it, like kids that want to fly here in the United States or go through FAA and want to follow the FAA regulations, that's a huge question. Do you go 141 or do you go part one, uh, part 61? And it's a huge question. And I feel like it just depends on the person. Yeah. And depends on the instructor entirely. Yeah. Um, I think I've been blessed with some good instructors so far. I think we'll pray that we'll, uh, we'll continue on that route down the road. Um, 
But it, honestly, like I can't imagine, you know, Embry Riddle having bad instruction. I just, I feel like they wouldn't tarnish their <laughs> their reputation like that. There, there are a lot of filters uh, before you get hired as an instructor yeah. and go through the standardization process and whatnot, but. It, it, it's. I don't think it's the. I don't. I wouldn't blame the instructor. It's just a lack of experience. Yeah. So let's talk. You know, since we're on the discussion about experience, we're going to move on to the next topic, which is I know what a lot of people, uh, you know, have tuned into uh, to this episode to hear about because you are the first airline pilot that I've had on the show so far. Uh, so let's deep dive into the pilot life uh, because I'm really interested about this as well. Uh, uh-huh. I fly airlines all the time. I see what the guys are doing but I don't know about the life that you all ha- pretty much have to live. Um, so what, you know, what is it like being an airline pilot, uh, you know, at a young age that you are? So, you know, you're, I think you're seeing today a lot more younger guys coming to the airlines yeah. than uh, years ago. Um, I, I find... I find it fascinating to be able to travel all over and uh, meet new people every time, uh, captains with various experiences, uh, captains who have been at the airline for 10 years, 20 years um, with different backgrounds. And um, you observe a lot and you learn a lot because, you know, once I have my time, I'm going to be also sitting on the left and becoming a captain and you learn uh, so many things from so many uh, different captains um, that I think build you as an airline pilot as you go. Um, so, yeah. So, oh, man, I think I just lost my train of thought. I hate when that happens. Um, do you feel that because more young people, ah, here we go. Do you feel because, you know, more young people are coming in, you know, and this is kind of, a reason why I started this podcast, you know, was trying to, you know, give an avenue uh, of, you know, maybe motivating younger people to to look at the space. But the younger generation looks at a lot of people like either yourself who are in the industry or myself who's just flying and working with helicopters uh, or maybe other people. And they say, oh, that looks cool. I want to do that, too. Mm-hmm. But then at the same time, I feel like a lot of people don't understand the amount of work that it takes to actually get to where, you know, like people like you are, like, it's not easy. It just doesn't happen overnight. You don't walk in. It's not like a driver's license. You don't just go pick it up. I wish it it doesn't happen. Yeah. Heck yeah. I wish it was too. I didn't have to spend four hours at the airport today. That's right. No, there's a lot of studying. There's a, you know, we, we, uh, pilots are heavily tested throughout our flight training, either, you know, orally through written tests, check rights. There's a lot of stress to, involved and um once you you make it it kind of you're still tested because you know i go every year to simulator and if i don't pass simulator training every year they i can't fly they pull me out of the line until i pass a recheck so you know we're constantly being tested on skills and you have to be fully in like committed to to handle the stress because if you're just doing it because it looks cool or because of the money, um, I don't think you're going to actually, you know, be able to make it. Yeah. Which is funny because like, you know, 
I feel like, you know, the airlines and, you know, the regionals, they can they can try to advertise, you know, like now I'm going to preface this by saying that regional and airline pay for the younger generation is way better now than it ever was. But it's still I don't know. And I think I think I have a question uh, later on uh, about this. But as a young pilot, you still have to pay your dues and it isn't as glorious at the start as it is after you put 20 years in. Yeah, of course. Um, and I feel like a lot of people kind of forget that, but that kind of, it kind of leads into my next question. Why did you choose the airline route versus going maybe to cargo mm-hmm. or corporate flight? Cause I know being from, you know, being a graduate of Embry riddle, I mean, that's a, in the aviation world, that's like graduating from the Harvard of business schools. That's like the Harvard of aviation schools. So why the airline route versus any other flying route? So I, I, one of the things I, I think I enjoy about the job is the interaction with, you know, the crew and, um, you know, the people at the airport, the, the operations people, um, even the passengers sometimes. And I think I would have missed on that if I went the, the cargo route. Um, so, you know, I, I've made great friends in these two years at operations here at Miami, at the airport in Miami, um, you know, crew members, flight attendants, and it, it's all a big family uh, that, you know, we're all in, into the industry, uh, into what we do, and we do it as safely as we can. And, in the cargo world, I think there's not some – they don't have that connection. Yeah. Um, yeah. So from an airline perspective, what – and I know you've been doing it uh, now for a little bit, so maybe your schedule has changed. Uh, but what is a typical schedule look like for you? So, okay. So, for example, on any given month, I, I get about – 16 days off 16 yes 16 to 17 they are not all in a row they can't be yeah they're sporadic right they're sporadic um but you i can tell you get about 16 17 um for example next month out i have 10 days in a row and then i have you know the rest scattered around the month um so we do have a lot of time off um you could actually do maybe a part-time job on the side because of how much time off you, you, you do get. Which is funny because uh, two of my – actually, yeah, both of my DPEs uh, because if people listen to earlier podcasts, they'll learn um, the stupid mistake that caused me to fail my first check ride. Um, oh. But they were all um, ex uh, – well, one was an ex-pilot. The other one was still inactive. He was a seven uh, 767 pilot. Um, uh-huh. for your airline actually here at DFW. Um, but they, yeah, he's a DPE and he still flies. So it's kind of like side gig. Yeah. Um, and you know, I was thinking about doing that maybe, maybe in the future because, uh, maybe if you, if you don't have anything to do in your days off and you still want to stay active on GA flying, why not? You know, do check rights and mm-hmm. stay proficient. And I tell you, let me tell you a little secret. People, you know, I don't think people understand flying is expensive. DPEs can make some good. Money. Oh, yeah. But it takes oh, yeah. it takes a lot. I mean, it takes a lot to be able uh, to do a DPE job. Uh, For sure. But, I mean, it's, whew, if you can make it, bless yeah, I you. Think, 
think I, I saw the rate of a CFI check ride in Daytona. I was when I left was about twelve hundred dollars. Oh my gosh, that's yeah. insane. So, <laughs> you know, <laughs> wow. And I thought my private pilot check ride was insane. <laughs> oh, oh, oh man. Okay, so. Let's talk about just briefly, you know, we don't have to we don't have to beat, you know, beat a dead horse, but when you started because you're still relatively new with the airlines, uh have the opportunities opened up because you have a little bit of experience so far? I mean, I know you've already switched bases and everything. Right. Um so what I'm looking at now is upgrade is uh, running about 2 years so I'm probably going to be upgrading to captain in the next four to five months. And that'll be in the uh, in the Embraer, which you fly now? Yes. And, uh, you know, most likely if I do decide I can hold and be a first officer, they don't force you to upgrade. I can be a first officer as long as I want. But if I take the upgrade, I'll probably have to switch bases because Miami is senior for captains. So I uh, probably okay. have go back to uh, LaGuardia and commute for for some time up there until I can hold, again, reserve in Miami as a captain. Well, you can commute to DFW if you want. We'll, we'll take you out here. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, but as a junior, you know, we, we, the word keeps coming up, junior, uh, and I, th- I feel like people need to understand this because I feel like it happens to everybody that goes in the airlines. But I feel like people dread the reserve status that comes as a brand new pilot. I know all brand new pilots kind of go through it. So can you go into detail into what that really means and how you experienced it? Because I'd love to know, too. So whenever you start, you are going to be assigned reserve status, which means you will be needed by the company to fly on certain days, if let's say a pilot calls out sick or there's a cancellation or a reassignment, and for whatever reason the line pilot wasn't able to complete that flight, they will call you to fill his position in. Yeah. So at my company, they give you a two hour call out, meaning if I'm sitting on reserve and the reserve period is 12 hours. So a typical reserve day would be, for example, from 11 a.m. to 11 p.m. During those 12 hours, they can call you anytime they want, but they need to give you a two-hour gap to get to the airport. So you you could be sitting at home, and you get called, and you need to uh, show up, and they will tell you what you're going to be doing and um, how many days you're going to be gone for. So I was on reserve for three months when I got hired in uh, New York. After three months, I was able to hold a line, meaning you get a set schedule the month before you know exactly what days you're going to be working. And you also get a lot more days off being a line holder than being a reserve. So you a line holder now? Yes, I am. So reserve guys get 12 days off a month. Line holders get 16, 17 days off a month. And the, the, the other thing that, you know, is, is important to mention is when you're in reserve, you, you can't control, you don't have as much control as as you have when you have a line in terms of how much flying you do. So when I am, when you're in reserve, you work whatever they have you work. When you have a line, you can pick up extra work and make, you know, extra 
um, money. So there's a lot more f- flexibility on uh, your income mm-hmm. when you have a line that versus reserve. But so what happens? And explain this one to me because I'd love to know. But okay, so I'm I'm a pilot and I'm on reserve duty, but I don't live where my base is. So how does commuting affect reserve duty? So if uh, you don't live at your base and you're in reserve, you need to get a crash pad at your base. Uh-huh. So let's say I am on a six-day reserve stretch, meaning you know Monday through. Saturday, I'm on reserve every single one of those days, and I live in Miami, but I'm based in, in New York. I would have to get a, a crash pad and stay at the crash pad during those six days waiting for them to call me. Which it would kind of sometimes maybe be unfortunate because you have to pay that then, right? Right, and it is unfortunate if they don't call you because you're just sitting around away from home doing nothing, just waiting for a call from scheduling, and that's why commuting is – is it kind of sucks for for anybody in the industry and everybody wants to avoid commuting because that's one of the negative things of the whole commuting but the good thing though commuting uh and i mean that just sometimes for me it just sounds that just sounds terrible but i know for a lot though the bad side is the scheduling kind of sucks you still get paid while you're on reserve duty right you are yes. You're guaranteed seventy five hours a month, no matter what. So if you are only given to fly thirty hours, if you only fly thirty hours that month, it will still pay. They will still pay you seventy five. Are you guys limited on how much you can, we can fly? You, you can either fly or uh, you know charge off per year or per month. We yes. So there are. Um, FAA mandated um, maximum amount of hours uh, scheduling controls that they keep track of that. So if you're trying to pick up something that would uh, put you above that limit, they will deny the request and, and they won't let you do it. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Um, so explain this one to me and I feel like it's true, but I keep hearing that, you know, they all say that all young airline pilots must pay their dues. Is there validity in that, and what does it mean? I think there is a lot of validity. Um, it, you know, it means you, the schedule is not going to be what you probably uh, would want it to be for a while. It means uh, you're going to have to, like we're talking about, if you if you don't live at your base, you're going to have to commute. Um, you're going to have to uh, deal with the whole reserve system. But at the end, it's worth it. You know, every day that goes on. You, you are more senior because there are more people being hired and it, it just keeps getting better and better and better and better. So make the case for us. You know, we, we kind of, we, we talked a little bit about why you chose the airline industry over cargo or, you know, any other flying. But make the case for us. Why should somebody who's interested in getting into aviation, why should they think about the airline route versus any other different flying route? So, they're completely different worlds, right? Corporate, cargo, airline. Uh, one of the perks I enjoy is the travel benefits. Yeah, uh, that I, which that is I huge. I mean, it's a big deal. Yeah, you know, not only for for me, but for family, friends. Um, so I get to you know get to ride first class for free if there's a space available to Europe or to go back home to Peru to visit family, and that's a 
that's a big deal. Uh-huh. If you work for cargo, uh, you would be able to jump seat with any carrier within the United States, but you don't get the, the flight benefits to go in first class some, somewhere else. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. So, is, is there anything and, else that maybe young aviators should? you know, think about if they're thinking, you know, Hey, I want to become a pilot. This is what I want to do. I want to get paid to fly. Maybe what else, what are some, maybe some of the other things that they need to think about? Are we comparing still to car to other paths like cargo? Yeah. 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 So like why still what making the case of why somebody should take the airline route versus any other route. So if you're going cargo and you have a passion for cargo, you just have to be aware that the schedule is not going to be nearly the same. I have a friend who works for Atlas and uh-huh. he's in 747 as a, as a first officer and they are gone for two weeks in a row. It's oh, a wow. two week on, two week off. So I personally would not enjoy being away from home for two weeks and packing for two weeks. Uh, he gets to fly to awesome places in Asia, Europe, Alaska, all over. But I just wouldn't like that schedule so um if there's some people who don't mind it and they like to be on the road for like two weeks uh you know it's up to them and perfectly fine Mm -hmm. all right so i think we've we've exhausted a lot of uh kind of the airline pilot life and you know what you've experienced and one of the things that both of you know you and i we love social media and you had posted it out i had posted it out you know that we were going to do this podcast together and we said hey if anybody has any but any question they want to ask, hit us up. Hit uh, I know you sent uh, some of your followers to me, and I have posted it on mine, and I got some questions uh, as well from the audience out there. So we're going to move into the next section, and I have never done this before. And we're going to pull audience questions straight out of my Instagram DM. Like, literally, I don't even have these written down. We're just going to start picking random uh, random questions. So, uh, are you ready for this? Because this is going to be something new for me. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So, uh, these are all these are all new. Uh, and I did it this way because I told Sergio, I said, hey, I just wanted to, you know, I want it the most authentic way. So, we're oh. going to pick a few questions here. Um, this was a good one. This is actually a really, really good one. Uh, this guy, uh, he asked... I have a question about what I need to do if I want to convert my YASA license into an FAA license and get a job in the United States. Okay. So I kind of know of the topic because I have a couple of friends who uh, came from South America with their you know, private and they, uh-huh. they went through the process of converting. Uh, you are going to have to contact the FAA for those who don't know, the FISDO, the Flight Standards District Office at your local area. And uh, they will get you through uh, the process of uh, the conversion. You're probably going to have to, to uh, they're probably going to do an English assessment uh, to make sure you're proficient, uh, which is a requirement for any FAA pilot certificate. And um, after that, they will issue the license uh, in the United States with the limitations from um, your country. So your private would say it would be a United States license, but in the back of the plastic, it would say that all the regulations um, from that origin country aviation uh, government apply. So you would still have those restrictions on you. 
So you literally just walked straight into somebody else's question because I knew exactly what question I was going to ask next after you talked about the English proficiency. Um, so we had one follower uh, message me and asked, what is the best way to achieve a higher uh, ICAO English proficiency? I can't even talk tonight. English proficiency score. Right. So here in the U.S., for those who fly here, we don't really have that because all our check rights are administered in English. Flight training is administered in English. In other countries where flight training happens with their own native language, uh, they eventually need to, in order to get hired by an airline, go through an AKO test. And from what I heard from friends that fly back in, in Peru and that have IKO level four proficiency. It's a fairly straightforward test. Uh, it's basic physiology and radio communications. Um, I think listening to live ATC helps quite a bit. Uh, if you just go online to liveatc.net, you can uh, listen live any frequency for any airport in the United States, tower, a ground, departure, clearance, whatever you want. And just listening for it for you know a few hours, a few minutes will definitely help you uh, improve your your uh, proficiency. Which is interesting because for us, you know, I don't even think twice about it because I speak it proficiently. But I know because so many people come over here uh, because of the affordability, relatively uh, compared mm-hmm. to other countries, it's a big deal. And for a it lot is. of people, it's hard. I, and I have to say because. I actually did it tonight. I was up at one of our airports um, over here in North Texas. So just up north, we have Denton, Texas. Uh, uh-huh. And it actually has a very, very large Asian population um, that trains there. Very big school that has some, uh, I guess, some combination training with some of the Chinese airlines uh, and some Indian airlines. And I tell you, it's a hard barrier to break. I yeah. mean, just listening and just hear the struggle in these kids' voices I just want to jump in their plane and help them, but uh, I know they have to, you know, it's all part of the process and they have to figure it out them uh, themselves. Yeah. So this is a good other, oh, go ahead. I think, it, you know, it t- takes a lot of uh, patience also on the other side of the mic from controllers. Uh, in Daytona Beach, there, it's not only Embry-Riddle, there are a couple more flight schools on the field and they also get a lot of students from um, abroad. And sometimes they would, they would get pretty, the controllers would get pretty irritated at, uh, you know, the students not reading back the proper clearances instead of being patient. And I think they have to understand that they are learning. Yeah. And they will make mistakes. It will happen. And the instructor can't help them every time because the only way they can learn is by making mistakes and saying it again. And I tell you, the last month, based on what's going on with the whole government stuff, and supposedly it ended today, which is great. Uh, but I feel like tensions and stress has been a little yes. higher this month than it has ever before because, I mean, of everything uh, going on. But we won't talk about that because I don't talk about it's, politics going on on this podcast no. right now. Uh, but <laughs> another great question coming uh, from an individual from Brazil, a follower of yours, messaged me. Uh, and this uh, this gentleman would like to know, about the courses at Embry-Riddle and specifically the pilot courses that you went through and how you feel uh, at your young age already being a pilot at a great American company. So 
the experience as far as the classes go, they gave me a, I would say, a solid foundation of um, knowledge. Uh, you will go through, if you're pursuing the aviation program, you will take classes in aerodynamics and performance in um, jet transport systems. So I would literally be studying while in school systems of a 747, given by a 747 captain or you know, former captain. And that was great. Uh, foundation for when I started here at the airline and when I was studying for my check ride for my ATP type check ride um, having that background was definitely helpful mm -hmm. um, and just I feel just pretty fortunate to be where I am right now because of the know. experiences you had at Embry yeah and to be honest working here in the US wasn't a plan for me when I first came to to the US uh -huh. I in my mind, I was just going to get through training and then come back to Peru and work for uh, for our airline back home. I didn't have in mind staying here in the U.S. and pursuing my whole airline career here, but it just turned to be that way, and I'm, I'm glad I stayed. So you were talking about the ATP, uh, and another uh, individual, another follower, uh, asked, is it a good idea to get the ATP CTP done before going to the airlines? So I would suggest to do it with the airline. And the reason is because, because some airlines will pay, right? Yeah. Yeah. The, the whole reason is I, if I would let them pay for it instead of paying it on my own. Yeah. They will put you through train to ATP, CTP training two weeks before your actual start date. So you're going to just start two weeks earlier than everybody will start and get it done and then show up to class with your ATP CTP. I did it um, while I was at Embry-Riddle in a CRJ 200. Um, back then when I started, I don't think... And it's airlines... all through simulator, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. Mm -hmm. uh, back then when I did it, I'm not sure if uh, the regionals were offering to pay it yet, so I just did it uh, as part of uh, the curriculum there at Embry-Riddle, but I would do it with the airline all right, so I had one individual send me four questions, which is great, um, but I'm only going to ask one of them. So doo -doo 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 -doo. here we go. This is a good one because I feel like it's kind of pertinent because it's different, right? It, I think it, this goes. This kind of question goes back to kind of do you take the airline, the cargo, the corporate? Uh -huh, uh -huh. Um, did you, you know, f from your airline, did you pay – for your uh, for your type rating, or did the airline pay for the type rating? The airline did. So I think years ago you would have to pay for your training, which is crazy, man. It's crazy. Insane. It is. It is. Uh, now they 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 pay for for it. They don't pay you as you're going through training, but they pay for the type rate. Well, they pay for the hotel, but they don't pay your salary as you're going through training. So one of the questions th th in this person, they sent four questions, but this is a question I think I saw about five people ask. Are there, and maybe you have a few good uh, examples, do you have any good references, meaning do you have any good websites, maybe some good Instagram or Twitter followers uh, for pilots seeking the commercial and multi-engine? Basically, we'll, we'll sum it up to any stages. Do you find any good websites, any good social media channels that maybe people should follow uh, if they're seeking these same things? Let me think about it. 
I follow a lot of people already at the airline industry, which uh-huh. wouldn't be, you know, too helpful. Um, I, I I would say, you know, just reference the FAA handbooks out there. I, I think that's where more than most of the information you sh- you're gonna be asked is gonna come from. Um, so I would, in, as far as theory goes, I would start there and. Um, by studying those, I'm sure you're going to pass all your orals throughout all your life. Okay, so I got two questions, and these are these are totally different questions. So I don't even know if they're really aviation, you know, nah, they're sort of aviation focused, but not really. So here's the first one, and this is kind of funny, actually. I laughed when I saw this one. Have you ever, you know, you or your captain, have you ever maybe had to divert a plane? Or maybe, you know, had to do some serious cockpit resource management uh, by Mm -hmm. removing a belligerent passenger off one of your planes. So by removing, I haven't. Have you heard any horror stories maybe of some of your friends or some colleagues having to deal with that kind of stuff? Yeah, primarily has happened during the pre-boarding or the boarding process. So it was, you know, they just got them off the plane. Um, I had a medical emergency last week, which we almost had to divert for. Really? Yeah. Yeah, we were on our way to Atlanta, and uh, we got a call from one of the flight attendants. A passenger was feeling disoriented and uh, sweating, and he didn't know where he was. He lost complete sense of uh, situation where he was. And um, we, uh, we were over Orlando. And uh, we talked to, we have a patch to doctors on board so we can talk to real doctors. Yeah. He suggested to put the passenger in oxygen. We did. And um, then he got better. So we continued on to Atlanta, but we almost had to divert. Oh, wow. I have a great medical story. I'm not going to bore everybody with it, but it was great because it ended with me getting a first class seat for eight hours coming from Europe. Uh, but I'm not going to bore everybody with the crazy story. The good thing is, is I got a great seat. I got moved from economy to first class because I had something okay. wrong with me, but it was great. Um, here's another good question. Lucky you. Because I know, right? Like, But All let right. me tell you, do not, because it scares the living daylights out of the flight attendants and the pilot because the pilot came and visited me. Do not, people, please get sick or have a medical emergency because it does freak the people out. Yeah, the, and was the paperwork out. and everything, it's nasty, and you feel yeah. really bad after it happens. Especially back there, you know, because they are looking at the passenger. When she called us, the way the impression she gave us of the passenger was that he was literally dying at that moment. And it was <laughs> not really what was going on. So it freaked us out, too. And that's when we were like, oh, okay. We, you know, the captain was like, okay, if it's that bad, maybe we just do an emergency descent into Orlando. It was right over Orlando. So, yeah. so what you're saying is maybe you have uh, a few drama queens working as your uh, oh yeah your flight for attendants. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> no, not not gonna hate on the flight attendants at all. They they have a tough Please, job no. too. So this is kind of a funny question. It, you know, we don't people that are sitting in the back don't ever really get to understand what you guys as pilots do in the front. So can you ever play music in the cockpit? Okay, so. I would say no, because you have to listen to ATC and everything going on, but I'm going to let you answer. So there's obviously one of the guys who does the radio, right? One, one, of, the, one of the guys does the radio, the other one is flying the plane. Um, l- legally, you're not allowed to listen to music. Uh, you're allowed to have a headset with a Bluetooth connection, but you're not allowed to 
uh, use the Bluetooth connection and hook it up with any personal electronic device. All right, so we're going to have two more questions. I tell you, I got this is something I need to do before every podcast. You know, just ask for these simple questions. Have my guests ask too, because when we ask together, it's it's pretty crazy. Um, hmm. Oh, here we go. Oh, this is interesting. So this was from a uh, Instagram user from Brazil as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, she said, "I saw that pilot Sergio flies Embraer jets." What do you think about these jets? As a Brazilian, I feel so happy to see our creations in your pictures. Uh, so what do you feel about the Embraer that you fly? It's, it's an awesome plane to fly. It, uh, Which is crazy because I think as a passenger too, it's actually a really comfortable plane as a passenger to fly in as well. It's, it's easy to fly. Um, it's, it's really easy to fly. Uh, there's a, a lot of automation on it. Pilot workload is basically down to zero. I mean, there's still workload to do, but it's minimized a whole lot um, with the auto throttles, the autopilot. Uh, any jet, you, know, you will have autopilot, but but this one does a lot of. You don't have to do any mental calculations for the descent. The VNAV profile lets you does it by itself. It will do any crossing restriction that ATC gives you. Uh, it's it's really fun to fly, and and then when you disconnect the autopilot and want to hand fly, it flies just like a 172, and I do that quite often. You know, I'm coming in, and it's a nice day in Miami. I'll disconnect the autopilot 10,000 feet and hand fly all the way down. So, do you prefer to hand fly versus autopilot? I do, I do. Um, I typically uh, hand fly up to 10,000 feet. At 10,000, I turn it on. Or I asked the other pilot to turn it on, and coming in, I also tried to disconnect it kind of early. Last couple of weeks, I did a flight from it was Freeport, Bahamas to the, to Miami. It's like a 25-minute flight, and I never engaged the autopilot. Hand flew the whole the whole way. Huh. Yeah. So I think this is. I'm gonna ask. We're gonna ask two more. So this one, and then the last one, and then we're gonna call it good. And I apologize to everybody who's listening. If you guys sent a question in, <laughs> I'm sorry I couldn't get to them all, but. Uh, Sergio does have a flight in the morning, and I can't keep him up all night with your guys' questions. Uh, so the question that we had uh, from another Instagram follower of ours is, what jobs can you get apart from being a – this is actually really good because I feel like it's really applicable for anybody going through pilot training. Uh, but apart from being a CFI, to reach the fifteen hundred that magic 1,500 hours, how long does this process uh, take – and we can we can go on all day about the cost because there's so many ways to to cut the cost and we talk about that uh, in other podcast episodes uh, last year. Um, but what maybe are some of those other jobs, Sergio, that you know of that people could take to build up to the 1500? So flight instruction, I feel like is the most common one nowadays. But uh, you could do aerial photography. Um, I have some friends who were doing that path. Uh, you could do crop dusting, banner towing, and uh, you know. I had a guy. All... I ran into a guy doing pipeline patrol today while I was flying. Right. That too. Um, I think flight instruction now has become the most common one for sure. But uh, there are other ways if you're not into flight instructing or you don't have the funds to uh, to pay for your CFI or double I. 
Yeah, and this is the this is you know, and I don't know if you agree with me, Sergio, or not on this. This is just my personal opinion, um, but I feel like if you take the CFI route, if you're going to become a certified flight instructor and you're going to teach and you're going to use it as an avenue, I would. I'm okay with you using it as an avenue to get through fast, but care about the process going through it because you are helping create the next pilots in the airspace. And if you don't take it seriously, it's kind of like what we were saying earlier in the podcast, you know, it's just the experience part. Like at least try as hard as you can to make the best pilots as possible while you're going. Exactly. Exactly. And I think that's important that you mentioned, you know, because it's interesting that you mentioned because, you know, I would, Riddle has about, I think 150 flight instructors, uh, and you would see a lot and you would receive students from other instructors and they would tell you, hey, you know, you're putting a lot more into teaching me and making sure I understand the material compared to my other instructor. And that was not too nice to hear because it shouldn't be that way. I think everybody should uh, treat flight instructing as uh, like you see, you're building new pilots and it, it, you're playing a very important role in their career. you know you're building the foundation of their career and their future if you don't build a solid foundation they're gonna fail because if you know that guy if if he's up there flying a jet and he loses all his instruments and all his screens and all his displays he's gonna revert back to pitch and power that you taught him when you were flying when you were teaching his instrument rating and if you didn't teach him well that's when a problem is gonna show up all right so the last question from the uh from the guests Oh, I just got out of it. All right. This is a huge one because this kind of goes back about why you chose this. Uh, I think it's a good topic to touch on real quick. Uh, And this individual asked, could you ask Sergio what the pay is like for a regional airline uh, where he's at? And I'm going to say from a safety standpoint, you don't have to say what you make, but maybe you can say how the pay is structured compared to maybe some other positions. I can say how much I make. I don't don't care. (laughs) So, you can share what, on, this po- on this podcast. You can share whatever you want, but uh, I just try to watch out for my guests. So, just a, a bit of a background because we talked about how much of the pay has increased. I was talking to a captain yesterday. In 2008, when he got hired, he was making $20 an hour. Oh my God. That's like working at In N Out Burger in LA. Exactly. Yeah, and they had to survive with twenty an hour. Now uh, the starting pay is um, forty five an hour, and I am at fifty now. And if I take the upgrade to captain, it goes up to eighty six. Oh wow! So it's like what you said, right? Like if you pay the price early on and you work through it, in a it's a relatively short amount of time. It's not that long. Yeah, you know, I look back and. 2013 was not that long ago when I started flying. So those were a lot of the questions. I mean, Sergio, I think I had another 15 DMs here, and I really apologize to everybody that's listening who answered a question, but we just don't have time for all of them. Um, right. Like I said, Sergio, he's got to be up at five. Yeah, he's got to <laughs> fly in the morning. So I want to touch on two questions uh, in the social media world. Because uh-huh. it's something that's really how me and you got connected. Um, but this is also, we just proved by all those messages 
that this is how people can connect with us and learn more. So do you feel that the aviation community kind of understands the power of social media and what it can do for people? I think nowadays it's it's even more powerful than it's ever been in a way that it's inspiring people who are considering a career in aviation to actually do it, you know, because you might want to be a pilot, but I think social media is showing all those aviation enthusiasts out there who, who want a career in aviation, what is really like to the day to day operation? What's the schedule like? You know, what do we do? And without social media, we wouldn't be able to see that. They wouldn't be able to see any of that happening. Yeah. Unless they knew somebody in the industry, but a lot of people don't. Like I, I never knew nobody um, when I was a kid growing up. So uh, it's connecting. So what would uh, you tell you know maybe these younger avers who or people who are thinking about aviation who all you know sent all these questions in? What would you tell these younger folks? You know, if they want to use social media to kind of gain a network and build relationships inside this industry to achieve their goals, you know, what would the things you would tell them? I would say, uh, you know, definitely uh, seek out connections. They help uh, for sure. You never know who is out there. Uh, just be mindful with what you post. You know, you never know who is going to be looking at uh, your profile. The hiring director of uh, the airline you want to work for might be following you and looking at one of your pictures. So you don't know. And just be mindful um, with what you, you know, comment out there and when you're hired, they do a background check of everything, and they will actually review your, your social media. Um, keep it clean. Of, <laughs> what? I said keep it clean and positive. Keep it clean, right. Just don't put anything out there that um, is disrespectful along those lines. That's what I love about your social media. I mean, you're so fun about it. You pump out so much stuff, and, I mean, it's questioning, you know, you're – you're just showing the life, you're documenting. That's really, I think, what has made you so successful so far on social media is you're just really documenting where you've come from uh, and the process you're going through. Um, and I think that's why you're building the the following. And, I mean, I applaud you on that uh, and everything that you're doing because I think it's really showing people, you know, the possibilities that if they, you know, if they reach for their goals, what they can accomplish because you, mm -hmm. you did uh, just that. So I have one question uh, to ask you before we go to the lightning round. And the lightning round is something I do with all my guests. It's super fun. Uh, it's going to bring out some laughs. But I ask everybody this question, and I say, if you could send a message to yourself 10 years ago, what would you tell the younger Sergio? Maybe something you learned or a mistake you made, uh, you know, anything. What would you, what would the uh, older Sergio tell the younger Sergio? Maybe kind of, as I went through my flight training, maybe kind of have, it would have said to me, um, enjoy every stage of, of training and don't go I mean, I'm not saying don't go through it fast because, I mean, I know all those who are flight training now want to get to the airlines. But sometimes you kind of lose track of, of the fun of training and being able to just fly out there with uh, no ATC and doing you know, takeoffs and landings and hand flying. And you, you kind of lose the beauty of that if you're too worried about 
going through as, as fast as you can. And then once you don't have it, I haven't flown a Cessna in two years. You kind of miss it, you know. So every stage happens for a reason and enjoy every stage as much as you can. And then eventually you're going to get to where you want to be and you're going to have to enjoy that. You're going to have a chance to enjoy that too. And I feel like that even if you're not doing flying, I feel like just enjoying the journey of whatever you're doing, I feel like yeah. is a recipe to just enjoy your life. Uh, yeah. I really, really believe that. All right. Mm-hmm. Well, Sergio, let's jump into the lightning round questions. I was getting a little late. We uh, we got to get this wrapped up. But this is a really important part because it's super fun, and I love asking everybody this because it really brings out the weird side uh, of all the aviators I have here on the episode. So lightning round, it's going to be 10 questions. You have to say whatever literally comes off the tip of your tongue as soon as I ask a question. There's no thinking. You just got to say it. So are you down for that? Sure. All right. All right. We got 10 questions. Here we go. Question number one. Everyone in aviation has their own quirks. So on a scale of one to 10, how weird are you? Seven. I love this question. Gosh. I literally, Sergio, I tell you, I have not gotten anything lower than a seven so far. Really? Everybody. I love it because I know the true answer. That's why I love the guests that I bring on the show because everybody's truthful about themselves. I haven't uh-huh. had one untruthful person yet, and everybody says they're weird. And I tell you, aviators are weird. And if I have an aviator on the show that says they're anything lower, no, that's not possible. I'm gonna go beat them up. I yeah, swear. It's, it's I don't believe it. Lying <laughs> they're lying. I don't believe it. <laughs> We're all weird. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Question number two. What's your favorite word? Peru. Okay, I respect that. Question number three. What's your favorite? Food. Lomo saltado. Say what? It's a, it's a Peruvian dish. It's called Explain lomo. It. Sure. So it's called lomo saltado. Okay. okay. So it's a stir of, um, uh, it has rice, it has French fries, onions, and um, and beef. It, you should try it sometime. It's really good. So it's <laughs> I, called I, lomo saltado? S-A-L-T-A-D-O. Oh, my Lord. You know what that sounds like? What? That sounds like a Latin American version of poutine. Have you ever been to Canada and had poutine? No. Oh, my Lord. If you ever had the opportunity to go up to Canada, because you said French fries and rice and, you know, I've been to Canada, but I haven't had, uh uh-huh. Yeah, so in that dish, is the French fry the base kind of thing and then everything stacked on top? Uh, Or is it all mixed together, kind of? It's kind of mixed together. Interesting. You're going to have to tell me more about this because sure. I love food. So Next month I go to Montreal, so I'll, I'll definitely Oh, try. that's the place. you got to get poutine there. I'm telling you. I'm telling you. All right. Question number four. What sound or noise do you love? The spooling up of the engines on takeoff. Thank God. I tell you, every pilot that I, that I have on that flies a turbine aircraft, if they don't say the turbines are their favorite sound, something's wrong with them, I swear. Yeah, it is pulling up. It's, oh, it's so nice. I love it. I tell you, but as a passenger, and I'm going to tell you because my wife knows this about me, we usually always sit by the wing uh, and the engine is right there. And I tell you, I don't know what it is about the engine, but it makes me go to sleep. I don't know what it is. It does. It, it huh? pa- makes me pass out. It's weird. All right. So question. If you're flying like a 145 with engines in the back, you sit all the way in the back? Oh, heck no. Absolutely not. I don't sit so in the back. So it depends on the plane. Yeah, so it depends on the plane. Well, okay. <laughs> so I was going to say, I fly out of DFW and a lot of the planes, 
um, they're you know the engines are in the middle. The yeah. only time is like when I fly because I usually always I have status on American. That's always what I fly. Um, and the only time I would fly on an airplane on the because I don't take commuters uh, too often. Pretty much mm-hmm. rare. Uh, the MD, MD eighty, um, uh-huh. and that plane itself. I tell you, Sergio. Okay, we're gonna go off topic here a little bit. The MD eighty might be one of the greatest planes. It's such a smooth airplane. I don't know what it is about it, but it's smooth. It's comfortable. I don't know what it is about that airplane. I wish they would never get rid of it. Uh, they are. But I know it's. I don't know. It's inefficient. It's old, but. It's a great airplane, and it's it's not that loud either. What's your favorite airplane? What's my favorite airplane? Mm-hmm. Oh God, do you want me to answer that honestly? Yeah. The Tomcat, the F fourteen. Interesting. Um, yeah, it's weird. It, now, do you want to ask what my? So okay, my favorite commercial airplane. Yes. Oh God, I I had the. F- you, you fly quite a bit, right? Yeah. I do, yeah. It's tapered down a little bit. Uh, it's kind of off and on. It's weird. Um, I love the seven thirty seven. I think it's just it's the standard. Um, I don't know what it, it's just reliable, right? Like it's like the Cessna one seventy two. Um, but if I had to choose any, I was very fortunate enough to be uh, one of the first passengers on the seven eighty seven. I've never been in one. Uh-huh. And it's a very interesting airplane. I still don't know how to explain it, how the feeling is flying in it. Um, seeing those wings flex up as high as they do is f- is wacky when you sit next to the window. Where were you going? Uh, Chicago to Dallas. Oh, wow. Okay. So that was, um, that was Americans, one of their first launch for the 787 a few years back uh, was that route so they could get a lot of people kind of experiencing it. Um, but, yeah. So that's where it was. But uh, all right, let's get back to the questions. Question number six. Oh, no. Question number five. What's the most important thing you carry with you on every flight? My badge. Your badge. Uh, your, like your name badge with the crew member one? Yeah, the non-crew member one because I can't go through security okay. without that. Can't go to work. And I have, I have my pilot certificate on that thing too. So, yeah. Okay. Staying within the regulations now. That's right. <laughs> Question number six. <laughs> what profession other than your own would you attempt if you had the opportunity? Does it have to be aviation related or not really? Oh, no. Like if you could say, you know, if money was never an option, if you could do anything in the world that maybe you had an interest in, like a profession, what would that profession be? If it, other than flying, it can't be flying. I would become a controller. Really? Yeah. Yeah. I I kind of find it fascinating what what they do. Uh, I have a couple of friends here in Miami, Tracon Tower, and I visit them. I try to visit them quite a bit because I'm quite fascinated with what they do and the stress they can handle and just the amount of workload they can handle. It's so would you be a, would you want to do, where would you want to be? Would you want to be in tower? Would you want to be, you know, in the center where you're doing center approach? So I would do an up and down. So Miami, for example, is an up and down facility, meaning they, they do tower and then they go downstairs to the Tracon and the radar room and they do approach and departure. Oh, okay. That's kind of cool. I, do they do that in Dallas too? 
Uh, I don't think so. I think Miami is one of the only class Bravo airports that's an up and down. Generally, mm-hmm. it's a tower and then they have a separate facility and you have to be recertified completely to do radar. But here in Miami, it's it's a combined thing. Yeah, so that's interesting because be- here in DFW, like I know some of the airports that I fly out of, like literally when a voice comes on the tower, when I call in, I'm like, oh, I know you. Like, <laughs> I'm just so used to them because they do the job uh, pretty much all the time. Uh, but okay. Question number seven. What are you not very good at? Math. And you're a pilot. Yeah. I'm telling yeah, you, see people, see people, you math. can be bad at math. I'm terrible at math too. And you I'm can terrible. still fly. And thankfully I don't do any math. <laughs> you know, I think the most math I do is add the bags between the two car compartments. And I think I can do basic math. Thank God for and, automation, right? Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, my math teacher was like, you're never going to become a pilot because you suck at math. I'm like, okay, we'll see. And Just watch it, so. me. Just watch me. Right. <laughs> All right, question uh, question number eight. Ooh, this is a big one. What is your ultimate dream in life? Let's see. I think, uh, you know, be able to, I, I pray to, to be able to continue doing what I love, which is uh, aviation uh, until I get to uh, retire and um, ultimately hopefully fly, uh, you know, to Europe, uh, bigger airplanes. Um, mm-hmm. And, yeah, just keep doing this as long as I am able to. I agree. It's like once you once you get in it, you just can never get out and you just want to do it for the rest of your life. So question number nine, and we're going to go in a completely different direction with this question. What is your biggest pet peeve in aviation? I think is, believe it or not, people not talking properly on the radio. <laughs> That's so funny that you say that because the controller tonight at one of the airports I was flying, man, she got so mad at them. So mad. <laughs> yeah, I think, you know, I, I think that just using slang, I, I hate it. You know, it should be standardized. It's standardized for a reason, man. I don't see even airline pilots keep talking slang. I'm like, really? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Question number 10, last question, then a lightning round. If you could fly anything other than the Embraer that you fly right now, what would you fly? F 16. Oh, the Falcon, really? Yeah. I actually was. The Viper, I guess. Right, I guess. I was considering uh, here you have Home State Air Force Base. It's a reserve Air yep. Force Base. Uh-huh. It's an F-16 base. So I actually have started the process to see if uh, I uh, go through all the training and see if I can do it on the side. Really? So, yeah. So we'll see. So that's a funny – that I had the same conversation because my instructor uh, that I'm doing my instrument with, he's actually an ex-Army pilot, uh, and we discussed this on the way back home. Uh, And I had actually told him, I said, hey, by the way, you know, you were saying that you're in the military. I took the Navy ATSB exam, which Uh is actually the the Navy pilot exam. Uh, I know everybody, the Air Force takes one, Navy takes the other. Um, But I took it at a relatively younger age, you know, after college, because I thought I wanted to go in the Navy. And I actually... How old are you now? I'm 28. So I'm just over... I'm a, one year over the age range uh, for a Navy pilot. I think 27. You have to enter flight school by 27. 
but I mean, it's shortage, right? Like everybody's short, and I think you can get age waivers if you really want to. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, I scored pretty darn well on my first try uh, on the test. So that'd be pretty cool if you get to do that. It would. I just have I I like flying fast and going fast, and I think I would love it. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. I, I think it would be such an adrenaline rush to do that. All right. So we're going to get in the final questions. Um, and these are going to be super, you know, super deep and thoughtful. So I think uh, the listeners are really going to appreciate this, Sergio. But the first question I'm going to ask you, and it's a question from me to you. And then the second one, I'm going to give you an opportunity to ask me a question. So from you to me. Um, I love these final questions. They bring out some interesting things. Um, I'm not prepared for what you ask me. I don't even know if you're prepared to ask me a question. Um, but the question that I want to ask you is if you look down the road 70 years from now, you know, looking at yourself, how do you want people to remember Sergio? So just, you know, the humble guy. I mean, I just want to be, I think one of the things that I learned from um, a lot of professors as I went through training is that you just don't want the chief pilot to know who you are. And that's so true. Just staying, staying out of trouble is so important. Yeah. So, you know, I really don't care I don't want to be well known uh, just as a guy who I'm taking, I take quite a bit of my time to sometimes respond DMs from um, Instagram, providing suggestions on motivation to people. And um, I think that's the way I'm giving back um, to uh, those who uh, want to be in this career. And, and I try to do as best as, as best as I can. Um, throughout my 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 i'm also planning to join a, uh, an association here in south florida to um encourage uh high school kids to um be involved in stem in aviation and uh that's just my way of you know giving back to the community yeah that and that's what i love right when you find something you're super passionate about it's so easy to give back to it and it doesn't matter the community or whatnot Mm-hmm. It just comes easier. I mean, I get the same, you know, I'm sure you you have so many followers and so many people following what you're doing. And the DMs you probably get, I mean, you probably get so many. But, I mean, I get them too. And it's just the fact that we as aviators and people answer them, like the fact that we literally on this first episode, this is the first episode I've ever introduced a bunch of uh, audience questions. Um, and I really like that format. And then it turned out that way. But the people that are going to hear those questions that ask them, I think are going to feel appreciated uh, that we listen to them. And I really feel bad that I didn't get all of them because I really wanted to, especially the ones that follow you. Um, But just for time, we just couldn't get to them all. Um, But it's just we care. And I think by just replying to people and helping them out, it just shows that there's a lot of caring people in this space. And, you know, for me, it might not mean much, but for the person you're actually answering and dedicating your time to, it means a lot, yeah. you know. All right. So for your final question, what question do you want to answer me, the host? Okay. So let's see. So if you had to move anywhere in the world to another country, 
Where would you go and why? Oh, man. Um, I wouldn't move to Europe. That's for sure. Why? You know, I don't want to talk any smack on it. I've been to Europe now two, three times. Um, you know, I'm not a huge fan. Um, I don't know what it is. Uh, I think the people are great. I think the culture, I think culture anywhere outside the United States is so fascinating. Um, I love Latin America. Um, one of my most favorite countries, I think if I could retire anywhere, I'd, I'm actually wearing the hat, uh, of the airline. I'd move to Belize. I love Belize. I saw uh, that. uh, but if I had to move anywhere, honest to God, it'd probably be somewhere in Asia. Um, at That's Bell, far away. yeah, you know, it really is, but I fell in love with the Asian culture, with the Asian people, the way they treat people. Um, it's very, very family-like. Um, there's a lot of cool places over there. You know, it takes a long time to get over there, and so a lot of people from the United States don't take the opportunity to go to Asia. Uh-huh. Um, because, I let's see, I went to South Korea from DFW to South Korea on a direct flight. That's 14 hours. I yeah. did that. It's miserable. Um, but it was worth every single minute on that plane. Um, cause the culture is just incredible. So I would have to say Asia on my list. Um, but there's a whole place, there are a whole bunch of places in Latin America I'd move to, um, Asia. I've never been to the Middle East, so I can't say too much about the Middle East. Never been to Africa. Both the Middle East and Africa are on my bucket list to go to. Uh, but Asia, I would say is on that is on the top of that list right now. I've only been to China, but uh, I'm in the next few months, I'm definitely going to do a lot more traveling. I want to, and Asia is, is, in, is in my list, too. Singapore, I have a friend who flies for Singapore Airlines. Oh, so. my God. Singapore. Okay, Singapore is one of the coolest cities. I want to go. He has invited me. He's a 777 FO. He, we went to Riddle together, and he, you know, he's been telling me to go, and I, I'm really looking forward to it. It's literally like New York, like the you think okay so when you were in new york right you know the melting pot of cultures so it's literally the melting pot of cultures in a very 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 small island i've like, heard it's so clean so perfect you know it's so clean so perfect no crime uh don't chew gum uh, i'm a big gum chewer um i was actually chewing gum in the office in singapore because we have an office over there uh, yeah. i actually spent about 10 weeks over there and it was really fun oh wow um okay. But yeah, if you have not been to Singapore, you need to go. As that goes for all the guests, uh, you know, our audience too. If you've never been to Singapore and you have the chance to go, you have to go. It is awesome. I'm going to ask you for a list of places to go if I end up going. Oh my God. And here's one thing for you and for any, you know, of our listeners who, if they ever have, if you go to Singapore, you have to try the chili crab. It's amazing. Chili crab, number one. Um, but anyways, all right. So the last question of the podcast, because I know we're getting late, uh, and you got to fly in the morning. So for the audience, because we ha- obviously had a lot of listeners, um, you know, send us some questions and so we know they're listening, but what question would you like to ask? And I say this of everybody, my small but growing audience. So since most of the questions have been aviation related, I would say Ask yourself what's fueling your your dream of becoming an airline pilot. 
And if it has anything to do, if the answer has anything to do with money or because it's easy or lifestyle, don't do it. I, I would say just find something else to do because you're gonna, you're not gonna like training. It's gonna be, it's gonna be a tough time. If the answer has to do with, you know, flying an airplane and feeling that rush. Uh, when you take off and land and anything along those lines, then pursue pursue your dream. Don't stop until you actually um, uh, get it, and uh, you will find obstacles along the way. It's just uh, a learning process. Learn from them, get up, and keep going. I, I agree 100%, and I think that goes – I don't think that, you know, Sergio, I don't think it only applies to people thinking about aviation, but I think that's for any – career path you know if you're doing it for the money if you're doing it for any other selfish reason like that you're gonna either burn yourself out or hate what you do yeah and it's a big investment it's huge it's huge so yeah think about it all right so we talked about social media and i'd love to wrap the 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 podcast episode uh, allowing you uh, to, you know, show the audience where you are on social media. So, where can everybody find Sergio on social media? So, you can find me on Instagram uh, as pilot.sergio. It's how uh, Ian you connected, and um, yeah, I post there uh, pictures about flying, my daily work day, and uh, soon I'm going to start doing some traveling. So, you're going to see a lot more uh, pictures and stuff from. Uh, place i get to visit that's awesome all right everybody well that brings another end to another great episode of the ask the abby show sergio thank you so much for joining me uh, you know i know the listeners didn't get to see it or hear it but we kind of had a little tough time uh with this episode on my part because of a, a little family emergency uh but sergio was so kind enough uh, to be super flexible and we were able to make this episode happen for the listeners because I know a lot of listeners were looking so much forward uh, to this episode. So again, Sergio, thank you so much for doing this uh, and have so much fun uh, on your next flight. Uh, and for everybody else out there, make sure you tune in next time. Thank you for tuning into this episode. And if you haven't already, make sure you go leave a rating on the Apple uh, Apple Podcast um the rating system on on my podcast make sure you go give it a five star leave a one sentence review uh let me know what you thought about this episode with sergio uh because guess what your comments and your feedback is ultimately what's going to make this podcast a growing aviation podcast especially here in the younger generation so thank you so much for leaving any comments and ratings that you have for the podcast out there but that's all for this episode. We'll, so we will see you next time on the next episode of the Ave E Chronicles podcast. Take care.